0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit CitizensChurch.com. Citizens Church, good morning. It's good to see you all today. Um, I have been refreshed already through our time of worship, and I am honored uh, to open up the Scriptures and study the Word of God with you all today. I do send greetings uh, to you all this morning from your spiritual brothers and sisters uh, down in Denton, Texas, at the Village Church Denton. Uh, The elders and the deacons, they know that I am here, uh, and they are praying for our time uh, this morning. And as Pastor Adam just mentioned, uh, I serve as a pastoral resident there uh, at the Village Church Denton, and I am in my second year as a resident. Uh, Before that, I was on staff with Campus Outreach, uh, where I worked on staff there for about seven years uh, at the University of North Texas. And so I am honored, honored, honored to be asked to to be here today. I I can't thank uh, Pastor Jamin enough for inviting me out to to preach to you guys today. And and the only question uh, that I have for you this morning is, can I preach to you today? Amen. And so, if I'm able to to preach to you today, then, then I need some help today. I need I need you guys. Every time I say Jesus is King, Amen. If I give you guys any gospel utterance, I need a Amen. If I need to, if, if God is good. Come on now, y'all are with me, so, so we're going to do that throughout the day. Uh, my particular preaching style, it, 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 it commands and demands some response, and so don't leave me up here by myself this morning, amen? Um, and so if, if you haven't already, why don't you uh, grab your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them, and I want you to join me in Romans chapter 5. Uh, this morning I do come to you bringing good news And I want to talk to you today about the transforming power of love. In fact, thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, In fact, if I had to uh, give a title to today's message, if you're taking notes, uh, the title would simply be The Transforming Power of Love. This is by far one of my favorite sermons to, to preach on. And if you're here today, and if you're looking for the clearest, most, most potent definition and portrayal of love, then, then, beloved, I would encourage you that you need look no further than to Romans chapter 5. Because it's here in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, where we will see a love so boundless... A a, a love so committed, a love so steadfast, a love so undeserving, a love so unexplainable that the only explanation for this type of love is that it literally has to be from out of this world. And so I know that we already read this scripture already, but this verse is so good. I got to read it over again. Beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says this For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Shall we be saved by His life? You know, I don't know if you've ever recognized this or not, but 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 there is a familiar storyline in many Disney and fairy tale movies. I, I would suggest uh, is that if you want to see uh, the, 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 a clear gospel presentation, then then watch any Disney movie. It's in there, trust me. But 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 there seems to be that this familiar storyline and this familiar theme. All throughout various Disney movies and throughout other fairy tale movies, the, the storyline usually involves two things. The first thing that the storyline usually involves is a curse that comes upon a character. The, the second thing that, that the storyline usually consists of is that there's this desperate need for the transformative power of love. Snow White. Sleeping Beauty, Prince Naveen from The Princess and the Frog, and and I know that this one may be a little bit of a stretch, but but I'm just going to say it, Princess Fiona from Shrek. (laughs) Each one of them share this common storyline. Hear this now. That there was a curse that was placed on them that only true love could break. But out of all of those Disney movies that share this common storyline, there's no other movie that I think displays and portrays this storyline of curse, love, and transformation more than The Beauty and the Beast. The Beauty and the Beast, if you're familiar with the movie, tells the story of a selfish prince who is cursed by becoming a hideous beast. This prince, now termed beast, can only be freed from the curse only by true love. Only then can this beast be transformed back into its true nature, back into what it was always meant to be. Now, if you know the story, it doesn't take too long before the beast is met by Belle. Belle is this beautiful, gorgeous woman who, unlike anyone else, that the beast has ever encountered shows the beast unthinkable acts of kindness and grace by befriending the beast. If you know the movie, the the, the movie climaxes with the beautiful woman professing her love for the beast. And, beloved, it is upon that profession of love, it is upon that declaration of love that the beast, hear this now, is transformed from a beast to a beauty. Now, long before Disney and long before the beauty and the beast, God has long been in the business of transforming beasts into beauties. God is in the business of taking people who many would not even give the time of day to. People who have been messed over by life. People who have been jacked up by sin. God delights in taking such people in God, the divine lover, the divine beauty, with an unspeakable act of of grace and mercy takes such people and imparts on them a cosmic kiss of love that transforms them and changes them from a spiritual beast to a spiritual beauty. The the, the primary weapon in God's arsenal of transformation is not guilt. No. The, the, The primary weapon In God's arsenal of of transformation is not shame. It's not condemnation or fear. But but the primary weapon in God's arsenal of transformation is love. Now, now before I move on, I don't want you to get too self-righteous. And I don't want you to start thinking that the beast that I'm talking about this morning is the person sitting next to you or your neighbor, or your coworker, or your classmate. No, what, what scripture says to us is all of us up in this place this morning, before entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, all of us are beasts who are under the curse of sin. And this is exactly the point of the Apostle Paul. And this is the exact point that he's getting at in Romans chapter 5. And, and I know that I told you in the beginning that I come to you bringing good news. I do. But, but sometimes the only way that we can marvel at the good news of the gospel is by coming face to face with our sin. That, that sometimes in, in order for you to see how much God truly loves you is by first seeing how jacked up you truly are. And what we see in our passage this morning, beloved, is that that before we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, tell us that in our sinful condition, there is nothing about us that is lovely. Be, be, before a relationship with Jesus Christ, beloved, Romans chapter five, verses six through 10, says that there is nothing about us that is righteous, or, or good, or, or even valuable, or, or worthy of salvation. When God the Father sees us, sees me, before a relationship with Jesus Christ, he does not see a beauty, But but, but the only thing, that God sees when he looks at us before a relationship with Jesus Christ are the four descriptive words that the Apostle Paul uses here in our passage. You see, here in our passage, we see the Apostle Paul describing our sinful condition before a relationship with Jesus Christ. And and what I want you to do, I want you to underline those words in your Bible if you can. In verse six, we are described as being weak. Somebody say weak. Somebody say weak. Weak. In verse 6, we're described as being weak. Also in verse 6, we're also described as being ungodly. In verse 8, we're described as being sinners. In verse 10, we're described as being enemies of God. Now, before we get to the good news of the gospel, I think that it's important that we first go to the classroom a little bit. We, 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 we go to the classroom so that we can define these four words. I promise you that I'm taking you to church here in a moment, but, but I first think it's important to, to get a clear definition on these four words to make sure that we're on the same page. Paul, beginning in verse six, says these words For while we were still weak. Now, some translations say in your Bible, uh, For while we were still helpless. For while we were still helpless. To to be weak and to be helpless, those two words denote powerlessness if you're taking notes. To, To be weak and to be helpless, they denote powerlessness. You may be asking me, W.C., powerless to do what? Well, friends, before a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are powerless in our own strength. To change who and what we are. I don't know if you've ever noticed this from those Disney movies. Um, the, the, the Beauty and the Beast. The, the Princess and the Frog. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. All of those characters, if you've ever watched any of those movies, all of those characters are completely powerless in their own strength to free themselves from their curse. The frog... And the princess and the frog is unable to, in his own strength, to reverse the curse and return himself back to a prince. He can't do it in his own power. Princess Fiona, in her own strength, is is unable to, in her own power, to reverse herself back to what she was meant to be. Sleeping Beauty is unable to awake herself from her sleep. And even the beast here. And the beauty and the beast is unable to, in his own power, in his own strength, to free himself from the curse and return back to what he was always meant to be, no matter how hard he tries. So it is with each one of us in our sinful condition. Because of sin, we, we, beloved, we, we all find ourselves utterly powerless to change our sinful condition in our own strength or in our own ability. In fact, later on in this same book of the Bible, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, if you want to write this down, Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says that in our sinful condition, it is actually impossible to please God or to do the will of God. We, We have absolutely no ability in our own strength to change our sinfulness by our own merit We have no ability in our own strength to change our our, our sinfulness through our attempts of good works or good deeds. We have absolutely no ability to change our sinfulness because of our religious morals or our good background. Hear this now. Going to church won't do it. You you, you being a good person won't do it. You, You giving a few dollars to the homeless man on the corner of the street won't do it. In our sinful condition, we are utterly powerless and absolutely unable to liberate ourselves from the curse of sin. Beloved, the scriptures say that before a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are weak. Weak. Powerless. Helpless. But, but beloved, not only does Paul say that we are weak in verse 6, he also goes as far as to say in verse six that we're also ungodly. Before a relationship with Jesus Christ, every single one of us in this room either were or are still ungodly. Friends, to give you a working definition of what it means to be ungodly, to be ungodly, if you're taking notes, simply means to live your life as if God does not exist. If you want to know if you're a godly person, measure it across the standard of do you live your life as if God exists? Do you build your life around the lordship of Jesus Christ? Does he have the final say in all the decisions that you make? For, beloved, to be ungodly means that you live your life as if God does not exist. It means to live your life for yourself. Doing what is most satisfying to you, and whether if you know it or not, whether if you believe it or not, whether if you are a practicing atheist or you've been going to church your entire life, all of us have done this. Being ungodly means hear this now means that you have zero regard for God. To be ungodly means that you have zero regard for His law. To be ungodly means that you have zero regard for his will over your life. It means that you have literally turned your back on God and your heart and your affections on something else. You have turned your back on God and his purposes for you and you have decided on your own that you're gonna live life how you want to. To give you guys a quick illustration of this, I want you to imagine with me that, that, that later on today, every single one of us in this room, we signed up to do a marathon. We sign up to do a marathon, and you know we show up at the meeting at the meeting place, and, and we're all there. We're stretching. We're uh, making sure our, our hamstrings are loose, our calves are warm. We are sure our feet are nice and whatever, uh, and and we're lining up at the starting line. Y'all are stretching. I don't need to stretch because I'm just naturally athletic. Amen. Um, and so we all kind of line up at the starting line. The the the, the whoever the person that ready said go, that guy or that woman. They say ready. They say, set, they say, go, pow, we take off. And, and for many of you, you, you just stop in your tracks because you see me running and, and, and I'm running like a gazelle and it's captivating you. You can't imagine <laughs> how someone like me can just run with such beautiful form and formation all throughout this place. And so we start running and we start running this marathon. We run the course and uh, midway through the course, you know what? I decide uh, to take a shortcut. I decide that I want to take a shortcut because I want to to win the race sooner. Or maybe, in fact, I realize that I'm behind, and and I see a shortcut right through here, and I decide to take the shortcut. Let me ask you this question. At the end of the race, am I receiving the prize? I think the answer to that question is no. And, And the reason why I'm not winning the prize is because I did not run the race within the boundaries that were originally set for me. You see, there was a certain course that all of the runners were required to run, including myself, and yet I decide that I'm gonna run a different course. I I I I don't like the course that the city of Plano laid out for us. I'm gonna run my own course. And I think at the end of that race, I should receive the prize. Beloved, I've disqualified myself because I tried to run the race on my own accord. Similarly, this is what it means to be ungodly it means to live your life for yourself. It means that you recognize that that God has formed you in his image. He's made you after his image. He's made you after his likeness. And he says, I've given you my image. I put my breath in you. And I've called you to live your life to glorify me. God has determined the boundaries of our dwelling place. And he has determined that that we should seek after God and that we should find him and that we should grow in our relationship with him. And that we should love him and enjoy him and worship him and glorify him. And yet we say no. No the insidiousness of our sin. How grotesque it is. We turn our back on a holy, righteous, loving God and we say, I know better than you. All of us, including myself, we turn our back on God. And and we say to God, God, you don't know what's best for me, I do. And the reason why we say that, God, you don't know best for me, I know what's best for me, because we think we know better than God. Friends, that is what it means to be ungodly. It it, it essentially means that, that you sit on the throne of your heart. You sit on the throne, God doesn't sit on the throne. We live our lives as if God doesn't exist. Beloved, just when you think that it couldn't get worse, it does. Because in verse 8, look at it with me, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that not only are we weak, not only are we ungodly before our relationship with Jesus Christ, but, but we are also sinners. You know, the Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that all of mankind is dead in sin. All of mankind, everyone. Everyone who is living, who has lived, or who will live, all of us are are dead in sin. And, And to be dead in sin, it means that by nature you are a sinner. Sin is not just something that you do, but it's who you are. I used to hear one pastor often say that, hey, you're not just someone that lies every once in a while, no, you're a liar. You're not just someone that, that, that sins every once in a while, no, the, the scriptures say about you, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner before a relationship with Jesus. You know, the Bible goes as far as to say in, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, if you're taking notes, that the Bible goes as far as to say in, in Psalm chapter 51 that is that when we are conceived out of our mother's womb, we are, we are born into sin. That, that as soon as we came out of our mother's womb, we were already taking a nail. We were already batting not a thousand. We already were on a losing streak. Genesis chapter 8 says something else that's really profound. Genesis chapter 8, and and also in Genesis chapter 6, it says these words, that, that from our youth, ever since we were children, every inclination of our heart is to sin. The proclivity, the propensity of our heart, the disposition of our heart is to sin against the holy and righteous God. Another quick illustration. Let's go back in time. I got some time. I didn't know I had that much time. Come on now. Shoot. (laughs) A timer to a black preacher is like kryptonite. So I'm glad that I got some time. Y'all get that on the way home. Timer, black preacher, kryptonite. Um. (laughs) Um, Let's say this. Let's say that we go back in time. And uh, let's say if you guys can go back in time with me. We're all about the age of five, six years old. And, uh. We go back in time, and if you can imagine yourself when you were five or six, I want you to imagine with me uh, that you, you get off of the school bus or you're walking home, you just finished walking home, and you walk inside of your home, and as soon as you walk in your home, uh, you're, you're met with this pleasing aroma. And when you walk inside, the, the pleasing aroma that you smell is your favorite food. I want you to think about with me that favorite dish that your mother or your father used to cook for you or your grandmother, or your grandfather, or your aunt and your uncle, whoever your guardian was, I want you to think about for a moment that that home-cooked meal that that just used to make your mouth just melt and salivate. And I want you to imagine the delight to your face whenever you smell that delightful food that you're smelling through your nostrils. Automatically, you start thinking, oh my gosh, what's so special about today? It's chicken wings night. Mama cooking up some homemade blue cheese with the barbecue sauce, da-da-da-da-da-da. Is something special about today? I don't don't think it's my birthday. I don't think it's, it ain't Christmas. No, our day came already. What's so special about today? You just start thinking about how great the day was already. You're in elementary school. You're about kindergarten or first grade. You remember that today, for lunch, you had those little pizza cubes with little pepperoni chunks on the top. You got two chocolate milks to go with it. You also remember that you know, you not only had one recess, but you had recess twice that day. You go back inside, and your teacher tells you, hey, you know what? No more studying for the day. Why don't we put on the Lion King and play some board games? You're <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, today's been the most marvelous day already. You know, I come home, and I put down my backpack, and I realize that, you know, later on that day, you know, I had a couple of crushes on some girls, and I, you know, wrote a letter, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe, and... And I got three notes back that said yes, and so I came home with like three girlfriends, and I'm really excited about that. <laughs> Never, nevertheless, I walk inside, lay my book bag home. I pitter-patter into the living room. You guys pitter-patter into your kitchen with me. And we're in the kitchen, and we see our, our, our faith has become sight. It's our favorite meal. And your mama or your father or whoever is cooking this meal for you is throwing down in the kitchen. I'm like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for making this meal for me. Anything special about today? No, I just love you. That's why we're cooking this meal. And as you're in the kitchen, you you can't help but to also smell, with that favorite meal, you, you can't help but also smell your favorite dessert. I want you to think about what that is for a second. Maybe it's a cookie, maybe it's chocolate chip cookies, maybe it's a pie, maybe it's a cake, I don't know what it is. But you smell that dessert. Your mother, or your father or whoever's cooking it for you is preparing that dish for you and you're so excited you want to have some of your dessert right now but your parent says hey you can't have it right now wait until after your dinner and then after your dinner then you can have your dessert you don't have a problem with that because you love wings you love chicken fried steak you love whatever your parent tells you hey i'm gonna go wash my hands when i come back i'll prepare your plate for you so your parent leaves and then all of a sudden here's the climax of the story You're you're, you're in the kitchen by yourself alone with the food. And and though you're not looking at the dessert, what what, what seems to be bigger and bigger, what seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your line of vision is your dessert. Next thing you know, that's all you can see. Next thing you know, you're just feeling inwardly conflicted. Lord, I want to have some, I want to have some of this cake. Anybody gonna see me? I'm gonna get some. So you kind of go up to it. You kind of look around, next thing you know, you kind of get you one of these. Y'all know one of them, just a little scoop, just a little break off a little piece. And, and you put the treat in your mouth. And it's everything you thought it would be. But as soon as you put that food in your mouth, as you're chewing it, your parent comes back into the room and they and they and they call your name. They call your name first, middle, and last. <laughs> right? Call your name. You surprise, you, you, you clench up, right? clench up, the glutes kind of clench in, you're shocked. Uh-oh, mama's here, I'm red-handed, fingers in your mouth, and, and you kind of you turn around. And your parent tells you, hey, is that a piece of whatever dessert? Is that a piece of dessert in your mouth? We're all here. What is every single one of us in this room doing? Mm-mm. Right, Hear this now. Who taught us how to do that? You know, what was interesting about sin is that no one teaches us how to do it. It's just, it just seems to be something innate in us to, that, that naturally has a bent and a proclivity to do it. You know what? It wasn't until after my, my mother disciplined me and said, hey, don't tell a lie. Tell the truth. I learned how to tell the truth, but I always knew how to lie. It was natural in me. And when my mother told me, don't lie. Tell the truth. What I started to do was to either A, tell the truth or B, learn how to lie better. But, but, but it was always in me. And, and beloved, this is what it means to be born in sin. It's this innate desire in us. And, and you know what? Th- this concept of being a sinner is not something that is new to many of us. Many of us know and understand that we're sinners. We, we quickly confess the axiom that, that none of us are perfect. The, the only issue, though, is not that we understand that, that we're sinners. We understand that we're sinners. That's not the issue. The issue, though, is that we don't understand the magnitude or the extent of our sin. We, we don't understand the seriousness, the seriousness of our sin. Many of us don't believe or like to think that there should be any consequences for our sins. We think that God should just be cool with it. Or he should at least understand that this is just who we are and this is just something that we do. We tend to one of you, God, like a a cool uncle who who lets us do whatever we want. And in the end, there will be no consequences. We think that we can do whatever we want to do, and God and I will still be homies in the end. You, You know a phrase that I just don't like very much? It's the phrase, Jesus is my homeboy. It's it's so undermining to to the divinity, the supremacy, the the, the worthiness of Jesus. But sometimes when we relate to our sin, we, we like to relate to God as someone who will just be cool with it. We can kind of do whatever we want, how we want to do it, when we want to do it. And at the end of the day, there will just be no consequences in the end. This is why many of you believe that you can do whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, and at the end of the day, still call yourself a Christian. It's because you think or you want to think that there will be no real consequences for your sin. But friends, this is simply not the case. Romans chapter five or Romans chapter six, verse 23 says that the wages of sin are, are death. Sin is not just the bad things that you do. Sin is not just the bad things that you do. But sin is something that personally offends God. God hates sin and he, and he takes it extremely personal. You know, one way that I try to help people understand the vileness of sin and, and the offense that it is, I try to explain to people to imagine what you would do, what you would think, how you would react if someone ever had the audacity to spit in your face. You know how dehumanizing that is? Inhumane. You spit on the ground. You strip someone of the imago day when you spit in their face. You're worse than the ground that I walk on. Friends, our sin is like a cosmic spit in the face, in the face of a holy and righteous God. My sin. And he takes it extremely personal. He takes it so personal to the fact of what he says in 1 John chapter three, verse nine. He says that not only are we not children of God, but since we are his enemies, the Bible goes as far as to say that we're children of the devil. You're not a child of God before a relationship with Jesus Christ. No, before a relationship with Jesus Christ, What God says about us is that we're children of the devil. Our sin is cosmic treason against the holy God and we stand on the side of Satan as as God's adversaries, deserving of his holy wrath and righteous judgment. And here's where we stand apart from our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners, We're enemies, we're spiritual beasts, we're utterly helpless to change what we are and who we are in our own strength. We are utterly powerless under the curse of sin. The only thing that we can look forward to in this sinful condition is death and destruction and hell. Beloved, this is terrible, terrible news, is it not? Therefore, the question that we should be asking is, what can be done? What can be done? Bear with me, because good news is on the way. What we'll see here in just a few moments is that even though we are weak, even though we are ungodly, Even though that we are sinners and and even though we are enemies of God, enslaved to our sin, even though in our sinful condition there is nothing about us that is lovely, righteous, good, worthy of salvation, God, in an unthinkable act of kindness and grace, is about to do something absolutely absurd. God And divine mercy and divine grace is going to love you in spite of you. To show this, Paul, in verses 6 through 7 of our passage, is going to show how the love of God is bigger and greater than any man-made love. You see, if if Paul only said in verse 6, if you're following with me, if if Paul had only said in verse 6 that Christ died for you ungodly, then that would be good enough. If, if verse 6 only concluded with, hey, Jesus Christ, he died for the ungodly, that will be good enough. But, but Paul, he does not just do that. He goes even deeper. And I love verse 7. He goes deeper in verse 7 by, by comparing God's love to human love. Follow me. Look at verse 7. Paul says this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What, what Paul is basically saying here is that there are a few people in your life that you might die for at a moment's notice. In fact, I want you to think about them right now. Maybe it's a family member or, or a close friend. You know, we've, we've all heard stories of, of parents sacrificing their life for their children. We've all heard stories of, of close friends dying for another friend. We, we've all heard stories of soldiers who lay down their lives for their fellow comrades. All of these examples are rare acts, rare acts of courage and sacrifice. However, They each have one common theme. Each of these examples demonstrate the human capacity to lay our lives down for the sake of those we love. Close friends, family members, and even fellow soldiers are one thing, but but could you imagine sacrificing your life for an enemy? Better yet, but could you imagine sacrificing your child's life for an enemy? And yet, this is what we see God doing. Listen to verse 8. But God. Listen to verse 8 again. But God. Oh, I wish I had some help this morning. Look at verse 8 with me again. But God. Oh, you don't want to preach with me? I brought my own amens with me from Denton. But God. Love it. I want you to underline the word but in your Bibles right now. This is one of the most important words in all of the Bible. Every time you see the word but, you need to underline it. You need to highlight it. You need to double underline it. You need to put stars around it. You need to circle it. You need to put boom shakalaka. You need to put thank you, Lord. You need to say glory to God. You need to circle and highlight the word but because every time you see the word but in reference to you, it's you not getting what you deserve. But God, but God, but God, but God, and one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible, He demonstrates. He shows off, he displays, he reveals, he demonstrates his love for us in that while, underline that word, while we were still, underline that word, sinners, Christ died for you. Beloved, what what makes the love of God, I'm about to go, What, 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 what makes the love of God so scandalous, beloved, Follow me. What, what makes the love of God so scandalous in this passage is not because Jesus lays his life down for the righteous. No. What, what, what makes the love of God so scandalous in this passage is not that Jesus Christ lays his life down for those who have it all together. What, what, what makes this, this passage so scandalous is not that Jesus Christ lays his life down for those who are good or godly. But what makes the love of God so scandalous in this passage is because he demonstrates his love for you in that while you are still a sinner. He demonstrates his love for you while you are still ungodly. That's good news. He he demonstrates his love for you while you were still his enemy. That's good news. He, He demonstrates his love for you while you lived your life as if he did not exist. That's good news. While you gave your heart and while you gave your affections to everything but God, Jesus Christ dies for you. He dies for the beast. This is the gospel. Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. You were powerless to free yourself from the curse of sin, and yet Jesus Christ redeems you from the curse of sin by becoming a curse for you, placing the wrath of God that you deserve and I deserve on himself so that you, by his death, can be reconciled back to God. Jesus Christ died for the spiritual beast, which means that Jesus Christ, he loved you in spite of you. And I don't know about you, but, but I love that Paul uses words like while and still. Made me want to shout for joy this morning. Romans chapter 5 does not say before you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. No. Romans chapter 5 does not say that after you get your life together, some of you guys believe that. i got to get my life together before I can follow God. This passage does not say that after you get your life together, Jesus Christ will die for you. No. Romans chapter 5 says that while you are still a sinner, God re- initiates your redemption by dying for you, by resurrecting for you. And this is good news because this means that God is not waiting for you to get your life together before he decides that he wants to save you. He loves you while and still you are all up in your mess. And and, and some of you need to hear this today. There There are some of you right now under the sound of my voice and you're riddled with guilt. You're riddled with shame about what you've done or what's been done to you. You're riddled with guilt and shame about what you did last night, or, and you believe the lie that, that God could never love you, saying that if God only knew this about me, or if God only knew that about me, well, well let me stop you right there. God already knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's already seen you in the middle of all your sin. And friends, he is declaring over you today that he loves you as you are. He sees you as you are. He wants you as you are. He accepts you as you are. And by his love, God is declaring to you that he will never leave you as you are. That by his death, he will justify you. He will reconcile you through his resurrection. What God is declaring over you today is that he will transform form you and so here's my prayer this morning as I close is that you would let them today beloved that the love that God demonstrates to you is unconditional somebody say unconditional 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 where conditional love says I love you because you do this or that Where where, where conditional love says, I love you if you do this or that. Where where conditional love says, I love you when you do this or that. Biggie Smalls had a very popular song aeons ago. He said, I love it when you call me Big Papa. Conditional. Conditional. Because if you ain't calling him Big Papa, he don't love you. Conditional love, friends. Well, conditional love says, I love you because, I love you if, I love you when. <clears throat> the unconditional love of God simply says, I love you. Period. That's grace. So here's my plea for you this morning. I'm not pleased that you will be transformed by this love. You know, if this demonstration of love does not shake the foundation of your being and compel you to fall deeply in love with Christ, then it's probably because of one of three things. Either, number one, you, you still don't recognize how much God hates sin. You, you don't think that there will be any real consequences for your sin. You don't, you don't see the cosmic treason that you commit against the holy God when you sin. You just don't see it. You can't fathom the weight of your sin and how much God how much God hates it. So you're not compelled by that love. The the second reason why you're probably not compelled by this love, if you aren't already, is because you don't see how sinful you truly are. There are some of you in this room, and your trust is in yourself and not in Jesus. You, You you trust in your accolades. Your prestige, your acumen, your pedigree, social status, economic status, righteousness, morality, good works. You trust that to save you, to rescue you, and not Jesus. Or number three, you don't see how truly you are loved by God. And, beloved, God loved us when we were unlovable. He died and resurrected for us when we were still ungodly and while we were still his enemies. And I am here to tell you today that if God could love you even when you were his enemy, then how much more will he love you as his son and daughter? Friend, you will never, ever, 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 ever have to question whether or not God loves you. If you need to answer that question on how much God loves you, all you need do is look at that cross and remember the empty tomb. That's how much you're loved. Friends, you are deeply loved. And if you've never been transformed by this love, the invitation on the table for you today as we come to the Lord's table is for you to receive this unconditional love. You are more loved than you will ever know by someone who died to know you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, God. And I thank you for passages like Romans chapter five that remind us of the great lengths that you went to to save us and to reconcile us from sin and death. You redeemed us who are in Christ. You redeemed us from the pit of destruction. You have set our feet on the firm rock of Christ. God, I pray that that love would truly spellbound us, would, would, would penetrate the depths of our heart. And so, God, would you help us even now? We pray in Christ's name, our Lord. Amen.